You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Hey Red Door, we are seven weeks into this series looking at the way of Jesus and we've come to the subject of the mortification of sin. Now, there might be a couple of reasons why that sounds a little bit strange in your ears. First of all, the language is just a little bit old school, a little bit antiquated. Mortification just means killing something. So the mortification of sin is to kill sin. Another reason why it might sound a little bit weird is just because we don't talk about sin today as much as Christians have done in the past. I was thinking about this the past week because I was looking at my reading list of books uh, for that I was reading in preparation for this message, and all of them are pretty old. Like uh, one of my favorites, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, Thomas Brooks, that's from 1652. Uh, the classic, The Mortification of Sin, John Owen, that's from 1667. Um, the Doctrine of Repentance, Thomas Watson, 1668. Holiness by J.C. Ryle, that's from 1879. My most recent book um, is by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, Spiritual Depression, 1965. So one way or another, we as the church have stopped talking about sin to the degree that we have done in the past. I remember, I always remember, um, one of the first sermons I preached when I was in my early 20s and I decided maybe I was going to be a preacher. I, uh, I started asking around for opportunities uh, to go and preach at places. One of the things about being a young preacher is that um, you're not very good at it and not many people want to give you a shot at it and where you get it wrong, it can go really wrong. So I, just used, I, I used to call up everyone I knew, anyone with a youth ministry or a church or kids ministry and say, can I come and preach? I want to get good at preaching. And so I remember going to one church out in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne, um, going down into the basement of the church. It was an evening service. It was beanbag church, very casual and I preached this sermon on the storyline of the Bible. You've heard it before. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Talked about sin and our need for salvation. And then afterwards, I went out for dinner with the leaders of the church. And I was like, come on, guys, tell me, how, how did I go? And uh, I remember, I think it was the pastor's wife saying to me, ah, yeah, um, we probably should have looked at what you were going to say before you said it. Because, um, you know, this this church is really for unbelievers and so we're not really comfortable using the language of sin uh, and judgment. And uh, so we, we're just not used to speaking about sin as much as the church used to be. But if you read through the scriptures, the gospels, and the letters to the church, you'll find that this issue of wrestling with, fighting against sin and temptation was a a very live subject for them. And I think, honestly, if we're honest with ourselves, it's a very important topic for us to discuss as well. And so we're going to get into it this morning. If you've got a Bible, I want you to go to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to look at verse 1 to 10 and see three steps that we can take in order to fight the sin in our lives. The first step we need to take is to know who we are. 
This is really important that we understand who we are. I, I don't know much about fighting. I couldn't fight my way out of a brown paper bag, ask my brothers. Um, I don't know much about boxing, but I do know that stance is really important. If you're going to have good technique in fighting, you need to have good stance. And the stance we need to have as believers is super important as well if we're going to tackle the sin in our lives. Paul talks about this elsewhere in Ephesians chapter 6. He talks about the fight that is the Christian life, spiritual warfare, and the need to stand firm. So it is here in Colossians. Paul wants to establish our stance so that we can fight the sin in our lives. And where we need to stand is in our identity, which is in Christ. So he says in verse 1 to 3, So, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Paul says we need to know who we are. We need to know that we stand in. In Christ, so that when we come up against temptations and accusations, we, we we can stand firm on the truth that we are His, that we are, have been adopted by Him, forgiven by Him, justified, right? Adopted. All of these truths help us to stand firm. In that book that I mentioned, uh, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Thomas Brooks tackles this idea of, of temptation and accusation and, and he says that one of the best ways we can counter those things is by remembering who we are in Christ. And so he writes, The treasures of a saint are the presence of God, the favour of God, union and communion with God which are jewels that none can give but Christ, nor none can take away but Christ. The law cannot condemn a believer, for Christ has fulfilled it for him. Divine justice cannot condemn him, for that Christ has satisfied. His sins cannot condemn him, for they in the blood of Christ are pardoned. And his own conscience upon righteous grounds, cannot condemn him, because Christ, that is greater than his conscience, has acquitted him. Related to knowing who we are is saying who we are. And this is really important, something I've only kind of discovered recently, that we tend to think that we say things because we know them. But the Bible shows us that in addition to that fact, we actually also know things because we say them. And this is why Christians throughout the centuries have been a a liturgical people. That is, they have said things in order to reinforce things that they believe. Things like the creed that we say most Sundays at our church, saying it reinforces the truth of it and helps us to believe it. The same is true of singing songs. We can't always say, I actually believe all of these great things that I'm singing, but that's not the point. It's the fact that in singing them, we can strengthen those beliefs 
that we want to have even if we don't have them yet. So we don't just need to know who we are, we need to say who we are. And you can practice this in your daily life. You can practice this with your household, just saying truth over one another, reminding one another of who and whose you are. I mentioned Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he has a, a really wise passage in his book, uh, Spiritual Depression, and, and he says this about saying truth. The ultimate cause of all spiritual depression is unbelief. For if it were not for unbelief, even the devil could do nothing. What about the treatment? The first thing we have to learn is what the psalmist learned. We must learn to take ourselves in hand. He means to to speak to ourselves. This is the very essence of wisdom in this matter. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? That is wisdom there. We need to not just know who we are, but say who we are. One of the ways we do this in my household, particularly given my wife Renee is is really tuned into worship and worship music and the lyrics of worship songs and the kids understand and remember worship music and worship songs really well we we tend to play songs that reinforce who we are and whose we are so one of the ones that we we play frequently and one of the ones we sing at church is that hill song um, song called uh who you say I am, which gets to the point of this, right? The point that we're making here about who we are. And let me just read some of those lyrics for you to remind you. It says, I am chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say I am. You are for me, not against me. I am who you say I am. Who the sun sets free Oh, is free indeed. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. So knowing and saying who we are will lead to a a better stance, a more secure foundation so that we can then go about the work of killing sin. Knowing who we are will lead to Action in mortifying sin. The Apostle John picks up on this exact point in his first letter in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 to 3. This is what he says. Dear friends, we are God's children now. We say that again. Dear friends, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he, Jesus, appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he, Jesus, is pure. So the action 
that knowing and saying who you are leads to is the killing of sin. So point two, we need to kill who we were. Go back to Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 to 7 says this, Therefore put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed which is idolatry. Because of these, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. And you once walked in these things when you were living in them. We must put sin to death. Now, I'm not a huge fan of the death penalty. And when I was living in America for a couple of years, I had a hard time with it, coming to terms with the fact that the state could put people to death because they committed certain crimes. But the logic of it is actually quite consistent. The logic of it is this that these people have committed such heinous crimes, that they are such a danger to civil society that we must terminate them, we must put them to death. And that logic is the logic playing out here, that Paul recognises that sin is so dangerous, that it's so serious, that it it is the reason that the wrath of God is coming, verse 6. He recognises it as such a threat to God's people that he says we must put it to death. Therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature. And then he lists just some of those sins that need to be put to death. Paul has a view that takes sin very, very seriously. But you could argue that no one took it more seriously than Jesus himself. And in Matthew 5, he graphically illustrates this. So Matthew 5, 29 to 30, it says, Jesus says, If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. I remember the situation that happened at our house growing up. We lived in Diamond Creek, which is um, uh, at the time was sort of outer suburban, semi-rural. Our property was... Um, bordered by the creek itself, and that meant that we had a ton of tiger snakes at our place. We just grew up around them. Tiger snakes are one of the most venomous snakes in the world, highly dangerous. And so we always had, during the warmer months, we would have a shovel at the back door and at the front door, just in case when you walked outside you came across one of these things, and we did from time to time. On one occasion, um, I was talking to uh, someone who lived on a cottage which is on our property a a little family lived in this cottage and they were a a classic kind of hippie family they loved living in the cottage because it was really plain really simple um, and it was out in the bush and I was doing a bit of work around the cottage on this day and I saw a tiger snake moving out of a pipe 
towards their back door and they happen to have one of their kids, a very small child, in a bassinet sitting at the back door. So I just I ran and said to the guy, the, to the dad, you know, there's a tiger snake at the back door, just so you know, we should probably, you know, deal with it. And his response to me was, was classic hippie, true to form. He said, you know, I'd rather not kill it. Um, we, we would just prefer to live and let live. And, and as a nature lover, I appreciated his desire to conserve and preserve nature. But that was a tiger snake and his toddler. And they were together at the back door. And that kind of nonchalant, that kind of cavalier attitude towards danger is what Paul, what Jesus is warning us against in this passage I think for many of us, we become so accustomed to sin that we, we, we forget to see that the serious and severe danger that it poses to us. And so we live around tiger snakes without thinking that anything will ever happen to us. We, let, we live and let live even when it comes to the sin that is prone to destroy us. John Owen was someone who took sin very seriously. And in his book called The Mortification of Sin, this is what he says. Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at this whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Set faith at work on Christ for the killing of your sin. His blood is the great sovereign remedy for sin-sick souls. Live in this, and you will die a conqueror. Yeah, you will, through the good providence of God, live to see your lust dead at your feet. The killing of sin ought to be general and daily and constant practice for every disciple of Jesus. This is one of our habits of grace. So we need to know who we are. We need to kill who we were. And then finally, we need to live who we are. Verse 8 to 10 of Colossians 3. But now... Put away all the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your Creator." So killing sin is about putting off our old self with its practices and putting on our new self with its practices. And this is really the purpose of this whole sermon series, is to put off those habits which were of sin rather than grace and put on these habits which are of grace which will enable us to live more like Jesus, which will enable us to grow into the image of our Creator. Put off the old self. Put on the new self. This this requires a daily, methodical, repetitive 
turning away from sin, turning towards Christ, remembering who we are and then living it out day by day. Now, just before we finish up, I want to just speak to that last verse, verse 10, because it reveals a really important element to this whole practice of putting sin to death and a really good reminder for us, lest we, lest we um, overestimate our powers in this practice. So in verse 10, he says, You've put on the new self and are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. This is the work of sanctification. Again, an an antiquated term, but just the term that refers to the fact that day by day, slowly but surely, by the power of the Spirit, as we follow Jesus, we're being made more and more like God himself. We're growing in godliness. And this is a slow work, and it's often a painful work, but we are, bit by bit, being renewed in knowledge according to the image of our Creator. So as we do this work, as we stand firm and claim our identity in Christ, as we kill and put off the old self with its ways and practices and sins, and as we live the new life that Christ has won for us, as we go about that work, we will have victories. We will, as Owen said, be conquerors. But we need to understand that it is a slow work, it is a gradual work, and we will fail along the way. Indeed, the work won't be complete until Jesus himself comes and restores all things, including ourselves. And so we need to understand that. Lest we go about our day feeling constantly depressed and despairing because of our lack of victory over sins, particularly those sins that are recurring, we need to understand that this is a work that will happen gradually. The point is that if we are indeed following Jesus, if we're committed to him, if we love him, if we want to be more like him, that when, then when we come across those failures, when we fall into that same trap over and over again, our response will not be self-recrimination because we'll remember who and whose we are. It will rather be a deep desire to throw ourselves on the mercy of God and ask him for more grace to overcome these things, to put sin to death. This whole idea is beautifully captured by John Newton. He's the guy who wrote Amazing Grace. He's the guy who was a former slave trader who had um, indulged in wicked behavior in his past. And he was himself coming to terms with the fact that though he was saved, he still fell into old patterns of being and believing and behaving. And so he wrote a hymn, which isn't as famous as Amazing Grace, but it's just as beautiful. And he wrote it on the subject of this slow, gradual process of sanctification and his trust that God would continue to work even when he failed. I'm going to read this for you and then just say a word of blessing over us as we finish. I ask the Lord that I might grow 
in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. T'was he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer, but it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favoured hour at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand he seemed, intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, humbled my heart and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied. I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst find thy all in me. Friends, let me just say a word of blessing over us as we go. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, and the blessing of God Almighty, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit be among us and remain with us always. Amen.